0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And while this is actually the first program of my 13th year of podcasting from here in the Salon... Uh, Nonetheless, I'd like to thank Marcus A., Nicholas R., and Luke S., who are actually the last three of our fellow saloners to make a donation during my year 12. (laughs) And uh, since this comes in the middle of March, I don't really expect you to follow this train of thought. However, it does mean a lot to me, as they bring the number of donors to the salon during the past year, to just over 100 wonderful saloners without whose help these podcasts certainly wouldn't be possible. So, Marcus, Nicholas, and Luke, along with everyone else who has made a contribution to the salon in the last 12 months, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, for today's program, I'm going to play the next tape in the series of Terrence McKenna Talks that he gave in August of 1998 at the Esalen Institute. His main topic for this talk is salvia divinorum, which has been uh, discussed at least 10 other times here in the Salon. But since this talk was given near the end of Terence's public speaking days, it may well be his final words on the topic of salvia. So without any further interruptions by me, let's join him and a few of his friends and hear what he thinks about this interesting plant. Well, one more interruption, I guess. (laughs) I should let you know that about 45 minutes into this talk, there was a break in the tape and uh, a few seconds of Terrence's words of wisdom were lost. But I don't think that we missed anything really important, so uh, let's get on with the show.
1: What concerns does anybody want to talk about? Is there an agenda we can talk about, psychedelics, media philosophy, Monica, the forces that deconstructed the Renaissance, memory palaces. Uh, yes, well, if you don't have an agenda, everything really does go, because then you're at my mercy. Uh, is there anything anybody particularly... Be
0: interested in hearing
1: about. Oh, well, that's a good practical thing to talk about. Uh, well, Salvia, it's an opportunity and a challenge to the community. For those of you who may not have heard of it, or this is a plant that has been known to botanists for 50 years or so and was always carried. It's a Central Mexican plant, an obscure mint that grows in the Sierra Mazateca of Central Mexico. And since ethno Botanical work has been done in that area in the 30s. It was always carried on the books as a possible hallucinogen because the local people, who were Mixtec, Mazatec, and Zapotec Indians, uh, claimed it was a hallucinogen. But the normal way of of de- of beginning the process of characterizing a psychoactive compound like that 99 percent of them 95 percent of them are alkaloids and when they would do simple alkaloid positive tests on salvia divinorum it came up negative sure so there was the implication that if there was psychoactivity in salvia divinorum it wasn't based on an alkaloid alkaloids characterize all the common hallucinogens, psilocybin, DMT, harmine, tropanes, such as occur in detura, and many other compounds. Well, about, I don't know, now maybe eight or nine years, it's been a while, it's stretching out, Brett Blosser an anthropologist who perhaps has been to Esalen, I think he's been here to conferences, anyway, a peer of all of us, he was studying these people, and they turned him on. He asked about it, and they showed him how they did it, and he became unambiguously intoxicated, in fact, spectacularly intoxicated. And so he told a few people about this, and the trick is no trick at all when you know it. What people had been doing is chewing and swallowing this plant and having very ambiguous results. What the Indians told him was to masticate it to a mush, but to hold it in his mouth, and that it was absorbed through the uh, mucosa, mucous membranes of the mouth. Um, it doesn't seem like much of a shift in technique, but what had been previously elusive suddenly became accessible to large numbers of people. And uh, it excited the interest of an amateur underground chemist named Daniel Siebert, who lives in Southern California. Some of you may even know Daniel. He also has been here. And uh, he... one of the things that attended the plant, or was part of its mythology, that was that if there was a psychoactive principle, it was somehow very chemically unstable, fragile. And it was said, you know, that you had to use the leaves within hours, no drying, no storing. And they do, the leaves do have a peculiar quality of blackening quickly. They are fragile. They go through chemical changes. But Daniel Siebert decided that he would just assume this was not true. He would just start with the assumption that the chemical constituent was robust. And so he started drying the leaves and extracting with the uh, petroleum ether to defat and then just um, I don't know, some other high molecular weight solvent to take it out. And he very quickly reached uh, white powder, a crystalline white powder. And when he smoked a very small amount of this white powder, it w- it was spectacularly active. So he then looked back through the literature of Salvia Divinorum and found that some 20 years earlier... Uh, a crystalline compound had been extracted from it, but never tested on humans or animals that had been named alpha-salvanorine. So he, uh, you know, chemical companies sell very small amounts of unrestricted compounds as chromatography standards. In other words, you calibrate your chromatographic column with a small amount of a known... Compound, so he ordered the chromatographic standard for alpha alpha salvinorin, which was only th- they only would send three milligrams. Well, he took he got the three milligrams and he divided it in three, and he smoked it, and bingo, he had exact he elicited exactly the same experience that he had elicited from the white crystalline powder he had isolated. So then he knew that what the white powder was was alpha-salvinorine. The pharmacology of this is pretty astonishing. First of all, it's a diterpene, a chemical family unknown to contain other psychoactive compounds. Second of all, it's active at under one milligram. This is phenomenal. Uh, LSD is uh, spectacularly active at 500 micrograms. 500 micrograms is equivalent to one half milligram. So, uh, but, but LSD is, of course, a hybrid a synthetic, quasi-synthetic compound made from the natural compound ergot. Alpha-salvinorane as a natural byproduct of of a plant is the most powerful psychedelic nature is known to elaborate. A milligram is way too much. I mean, is you know triggers the feeling of an overdose of some sort. Uh, well, so this compound, very late in the in the history of the el- uh, elaboration of psychedelic drugs from nature. In other words, it's been a long, long time since a discovery like this was made. Uh, LSD was in the late 40s. Psilocybin and DMT both arrive around 1956, 57, and there were no major... Well, D.O.M., Sasha elaborated that. That was a synthetic. That came in the early 60s. But since then, there's been no... Uh, mega-hallucinogen in its own special family elaborated. As for the, you know, pharmacopsychology of this thing, I've not uh, done the pure compound. It's somewhat scary. One thing that's scary about it is it creates a profound break with reality. Uh, the person who is intoxicated does totally loses touch with this world, and unlike people on DMT or ketamine or some other short-acting psychoactive or or disassociative, they won't stay still people tend to move around and be active, which is a real pain for the sitter and near and dear. Um, the protocol for dealing with this is the old tie to the tree protocol. Uh, you know, this stuff only lasts, uh, three to twelve minutes, so if you're really concerned about keeping somebody still, they should be tied to the mast, as Ulysses was when he wanted to hear the siren song. You know, he had his crew lash him to the mast, and then he stopped all their ears with cotton wool, whatever cotton wool is, and uh, then he could hear the siren song, but not succumb to it. Um... Maybe some of you remember in um, Gabriel García Márquez's novel Sin Años de Soledad, José Arcadia Buendía ties himself to a tree to take detura. And uh, so it does have a, a tradition, at least in uh, Latin American fantastic realism, if nowhere else. Uh, when I took the leaf, it was very psychedelic. It was, not, it was not considering the chemical difference. It was not as dramatically different from other psychedelics as I thought it would be. The hallucinations were, are very bright and seem strangely linked to the reflex of closed eyes. In other words, I was sitting in a darkened room flooded with moonlight and with my eyes open nothing was happening with my eyes closed instantaneously there was a very bright complicated recessional landscape uh, you've done it a lot in bongs right yes smoking in a bong some people seem to have to have trouble connecting with it like on the internet there's a lot of complaining about how it doesn't work or why doesn't it work for me but if you keep at it it's usually just a methodological thing and also there is something weird about the handshake between user and drug the very first time i remember when i was first exposed to cannabis I smoked it a number of times with no discernible result to me, although I noticed people like to come and watch. And then finally, one evening, uh, my mentor in these matters said, we're just going to keep smoking these things until you avow that you are loaded. And it took about four joints of terrible swag weed and then it just like there came a moment where um, everything rearranged itself, and yeah, swag. I heard that term recently. Yeah. Well, to me, it always meant stolen clothing in Manhattan. You know, <laughs> the mafia deals in swag, but now it's apparently come they to me. Be- yeah, swag means stolen Maybe stolen be fashion. It's
0: stealthy, what? <laughs>
1: For the fashion? For the stolen clothes? No, just stolen goods. Oh, stolen right. goods. With swag. Well, maybe I hung out with people so Yiddish that <laughs> <laughs> all S's were S-H's. Schwag. <laughs> What's the magic of the ball? It's all about the, the a lot of weed delivered in one big hit, you know, as opposed to a pipe. The joints don't really seem to do it not enough at once, and kind of syndrome. Once you've actually sucked down a big, long hit of it and held it in and gotten off, then I think you're much more sensitive to like canvas in that way, you can kind of tune into it and it doesn't take as big of a long hit to put me over the edge as it used to But the difficulty of connecting with it makes it sound subtle, but when you actually do connect with it, it's not subtle at all, it absolutely knocks you off your pins. Uh, as a plant, you know it can be grown in a window box. It can be grown in any enriched garden bed. It's very much like a coleus. You know what coleuses are? These ornamental plants. You see them everywhere. They're used in landscaping. They have very brightly veined leaves, red, purple, green. Uh, chartreuse, very dramatic colors. Well, this is like a coleus that is not dramatic. It's just a green-leafed coleus, but it forms the same kind of flowers as coleus. And then, you know, in the interest of thoroughness, I suppose, uh, there are a lot of mysteries about the ethnography of this plant. It's only known from these Mexican highland Indians but they have no word for it in their own language. They refer to it as ojas de la pastora, leaves of the shepherdess. Well, if they've been using this plant for hundreds of years, it's inconceivable that there would not be a vocabulary for it in their native language. Why would they use the language of the conqueror to describe a shamanic plant? So people have wanted to say, well... Maybe they, maybe, they, maybe it was brought from somewhere else. One candidate, don't ask me why, was the Basque country of Spain. Not because there are, is such a plant there, but simply because it was inside the empire that conquered Mexico. Um, another possibility we don't know is maybe it has been discovered recently. One thing we don't know about psychedelic plants but tend to assume is that whenever we discover a psychedelic plant in a ritual context, that it's, pr- that it's ancient, 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 ancient. But there are some examples which suggest this may not be true, that this is a kind of uh, prejudice on our part. Two spectacular examples. The first is Peyote. The general assumption about peyote is that it's thousands and thousands of years old. In fact, uh, there appears to have been very little peyote use before the ghost dance religion of 1888. In the old graves of the uh, Sonoran Mexico, the Tarahumara and these people, the narcotic plant remains that you find are of Sephora secundifolia, a plant that contains cytosine, a compound we, with our cultural values, would not even consider psychedelic. We would consider it an ordeal poisoning. You know if i were to give you cytosine you'd wrap yourself around the john all night long and vomit and convulse and it would definitely put you through psychological changes but to embrace it as a path is you know not in our cultural toolkit Um, another example is ibogaine tabernanthi iboga use in the congo and zaire region of africa This is used by the Fang people. They build elaborate rituals around it. They have a myth of its origins. We can't find any record of using this plant before 1860. And yet the Portuguese were in there from the 1430s onward, describing customs and cataloging the cultural toolkit. So uh, it may be that plant that a phenomenon which we associate with modernity, the discovery and application of new psychedelic plants, has been going on all for a long time. You know, I can remember a time when the only known source of psychoactive mushrooms was central Mexico. And now, Every nation on Earth, uh, right up to the Paleo-Arctic zone, has its own well-established and well-described psychoactive mushroom flora. And that's simply because people started paying
0: attention.
1: I asked Paul Stamets once why he thought it took people so long to notice. For instance, in southern Oregon, which is really one of the great mushroom ecosystems, psychedelic mushroom ecosystems of the world. Why had it taken so long for people to wake up to what was going on there? And he said it was because mycologists, when they would go collecting, they would always strive to go to the pure, primary, uncut, remote, Pacific rainforest ecosystem. And he said all these psychedelic mushrooms they're found in highway medium strips, playgrounds, rhododendron dells, uh, the lawns of courthouses, public buildings, city parks. They tend to associate themselves with human beings. And and they were all very diminutive, too. Uh, In other words, there was a time in mycology when if it was, you know, smaller than a dime, you didn't bother. Later, when it was... All the good stuff had been mined out. Then people discovered the so-called microflora and went back and cataloged it. Yeah.
0: Suggest something? Maybe that. Maybe all the you know ecological changes that have occurred all over the globe. I don't know what that part of Mexico is like, but I mean from what I understand, it's been through many changes of agrarian, uh, cultures, and rainforest. So maybe there's a change in the ecosystem of the plant community that has brought some plants that have just been in the background being out, in, out to you know, a place where people notice them. So
1: you mean in the case of salvia? In the case of
0: salvia, or in the case of the mushrooms that they there in golf courses and riding, in highway median strips, those are different uh, ecologies than occurred. In the rain. Right. Or so as those things change, you know, a lot of things love disturbance
1: right no i think you're probably right i don't know if it's true for salvia which tends in spite of the fact that it's never been observed to set seed it seems to grow in fairly steep ravines uh, well-drained walls of steep ravines i think that in the case of the mushroom the practice of swidden agriculture of of so-called slash-and-burn of small tropical plots, that always creates an, a different ecological niche. And you often see, for any given area, fairly exotic mushrooms and fungi in the wake of burns. Morels grow in the wake of... To
0: some things too, some plants seed only after an extreme disturbance like a... Right.
1: One of the most spectacular psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico is actually called the landslide mushroom, and is found in places where the earth is slid, so disturbed earth. <coughs> Another one, uh, the one, the landslide mushroom is called Berumbe psilocybe uh, aztecorum. Another one, psilocybe carolescence even in that aboriginal context is only found in bagasse. You all know what bagasse is? It's the waste from uh, the operation of making sugar from sugarcane. produces a high cellulose, low sugar pulp. And it, it's an ideal medium for growing any kind of mushroom. But Psilocybe carolessens seems to have adapted to it as its preferred to uh, preferred ecosystem,
0: yeah. David Aurora, a mushroom expert from Santa Cruz, he, he was a visiting teacher here last uh, winter, I think, and he, people all ask him about psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, they're not common in this area, but he told us that he's finding uh, philosophy, essence I think it was, which is fairly common, I guess, in the Northwest, but he's been finding it around here now in, in wood chip mulch. Last time I just got a trip for a few years ago, so people you know, are starting to look for a blue-staining, small brown mushroom.
1: Well, you know, one of the ironies of mushroom culture, no pun intended, is that in Western Washington, uh, there are areas where one of the major local businesses is the produce production of landscape mulch, and this stuff is shipped all over the country. In plastic bags and it's just saturated with local mushroom spores and so all the all the formerly Oregonian and Washingtonian mushroom spores have become generalized throughout the temperate zone uh, almost impossible to escape them uh, and the cycle of distribution is very rapid for example Not, I think, five or six years ago, Paul Stamitz made the first collection of Psilocybi Azurescens, which is a very high psilocybin content the highest ever measured is in this species and he discovered the specimen growing in this completely unusual environment he discovered it in a snag of driftwood right where the columbia river meets the pacific ocean so this super specialized ecosystem he comes upon this mushroom very high psilocybin content He takes it home, he cultivates it, he sells spores of it, other people cultivate it. And five years later, there's an area along a main highway in Washington where there are several thousand acres where this stuff comes into fruit. So it goes from being an undescribed species to, you know, as far as the eye can see, in a very short amount of time... uh, it, it's a weird thing how certain uh, psychoactives associate themselves to human beings, the mushroom we talked about. But you know, there's also this theory that uh, Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries that were at the center of Greek mystery religions, uh, was an ergotized beer, uh, well, ergot is a cereal. And ergot... Uh, I, mean, I mean, ergot grows on rye, which is a human foodstuff, something which developed in the Middle East uh, over several millennia. So it's strange. Uh, and the grasses, which are very high in often in DMT and gramine and other compounds like that, the grasses are... Uh, Uh, plants which evolved in the same environment as human beings. So it's almost as though there's uh, a preference on the part of human beings and psychoactive plants either for each other or for certain kinds of ecosystems. I mean, that's not true universally. There are psychoactive plants that are very rare, very wild, uncultivated, Uh, anybody else on that anything else about that you mentioned one time uh, that uh, there was was about to be a book
0: published having to do with the aboriginal culture of uh, Australia and their use in the
1: yeah that's right well in the way of publishing these things tend to move slowly uh, actually I should have brought and I will bring to another meeting a piece of propaganda for the Mexican psychoactive plant intensives that have been held every year for a while now at Palenque or somewhere else in Mexico because next year it'll be held at Palenque as well and Michael Bach who is one of the people who's figured all this out and Australia is going to come and talk about it. Yeah, the old story was that for reasons which nobody could understand, but which generated some interesting speculation, psychedelic plants seemed concentrated in the Amazon Basin and in the New World. In other words, there was this this so-called Central Mexican Complex which includes, you know, a dozen psychoactive mushrooms, um, uh, peyote, morning glories of several species, uh, cannabis as an introduced thing. I think we can leave it out of the classical situation, but quite a complex of these psychoactive plants. Then in the Amazon, an even more intense complex. The Banisteriopsis Drinks the ayahuasca's, uh, then out on the plains, snuff cults, um, the varrola cults, that's DMT, but from the sap of a tree, uh, all kinds of stuff. Now it appears that uh, Australia, which had been completely overlooked in all of this, has an extremely rich psychedelic flora and the how could this be overlooked well apparently aboriginal society is first of all one of the most paranoid societies in the world in the sense that they are very able to keep a secret it's about secrets they've had practice it's not a new thing secrets within secrets within secrets is how aboriginal society works so they weren't willing to cop to it until somebody came from the outside and basically said, I'm going to tell you how it works. All you have to do is blink your left eye when I'm done if what I say is true, and then laid it out to these guys. You know, the national symbol of Australia is the wattle. It's on the flag or it's on the state symbol or something. Well, it's an acacia. Acacia is one of the most suspect genera. The entire supergroup of the leguminosae is very alkaloid-rich, and the acacia group, which is, you know, right in the center of that, is very dense in tryptamines and other psychoactive alkaloids. So these Australian freaks, basically, began... Using Peganum harmala seed is an MAO inhibitor. That's an Iranian plant that is quite an efficient MAO inhibitor. You just need a couple grams of the little hard dark seeds and it will inhibit all the MAO in your body making your body then sensitive to oral doses of DMT. So they started using Peganum harmala and just working their way through these Australian acacias. And they discovered that uh, simplex, acacia simplex, a New Caledonian species, has more DMT in it than any other plant ever looked at. Uh, Acacia phlebophylla, a plant that grows on a mountain near Sydney, highly active. And then the more they looked, the they found, and a few months ago it sort of broke out into a controversy because the Minister of Drug Interdiction and Control saw fit to denounce all this and draw everyone's attention to it. Uh, Did the Aborigines use DMT? Seems like they did. They're still not ready to just cough up all the secrets. But If, in fact, I've always been puzzled by the aboriginal societies of Australia, because I'm keen for atavistic social behavior and the idea of an archaic revival through psychedelics and all that, and it all worked for me, except it seemed to me like the Australian aborigines should be psychedelic, and now I discovered they are psychedelic. Uh, And, you know, the notion if you know anything about the Australian Aborigines, you know that their main cultural value system is built around something called the Dreamtime. Well, the Dreamtime, DMT is very dreamlike. The chemistry of dreaming and the chemistry of DMT, I would bet you, are, you know, Siamese twins of each other. Uh, DMT is incredibly dramatic in its effects, but when it leaves you, the entire construct of the alien reality departs in under 20 or 30 seconds, exactly the way a complex dream leaves you when your alarm starts ringing in the middle of it and you stumble out of bed. Uh, In clinical studies dmt concentrates in the human spinal fluid between three and four a.m well that's when the deep rem dreaming is going on and if you've ever given dmt by the method of smoking to somebody the way you can tell that they've really gotten off you tell them you know take three hits four hits whatever and lay down and shut up and close your eyes well, then you look at them in this state. If they've actually gotten off, they will go into REM. Their eyes will move wildly underneath their closed eyelids. They're actually tracking the, the hallucinatory objects in the mind space they've entered. So there's a whole bunch of circumstantial evidence that suggests that, and one piece I didn't mention, DMT occurs naturally in human metabolism. Produced in the D, in the pineal gland in conjunction with compounds that are very much like beta carbolines are in fact beta carbolines. Adeneroglomerotropine, which is a pineal enzyme, when renamed according to the rules of organic chemistry, is six methoxy It's some kind of relative of harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharman. So, uh, and that's a light-mediated chemistry in the pineal gland, which seems suggestive to me. It may not have anything to do with it. Uh, so, Australian Aboriginal shamanism based on entering into some kind of waking dream, some kind of chemical intervention on normal physiological functioning that produces kind of waking dream state, seems to me very... Plausible. You know, when you go to the Amazon, the the mestizo cultures of the towns have a certain way of doing ayahuasca curing sessions, Saturday night get togethers, community sings, this and that. But when you go to the people where it's life and death, tribal Shamanism with high degree of paranoia and high reliance on actual hunting, in other words, the most unacculturated people, uh, the uh, style of ayahuasca-taking of the shamans is solitary and virtually continuous. In other words, they're living inside these states. They never come down. They are constantly dosing themselves and moving in a world hard for someone like ourselves to imagine. Even if you've had ayahuasca, you can't imagine what it would be like to just move in there and pitch your tent. I can't remember what the point of all that was, but it seems like we're talking about drugs here in some form. Oh, it was about the Australian Aborigines. Yeah, so if you're interested in all this... Uh, you can. There's some websites, Aussie websites, that deal with this. There's even a taxonomic key to the acacias of uh, Australia and New Zealand online. And then in the DMT lists all kinds of discussion. A lot of talk about preparation. A lot of people, I think, are sincere people wasting their time trying to extract dmt from plants that contain it but in vanishingly small amounts like i think we pretty much established at this point that unless you have a fully equipped chemical laboratory of reasonable capacity you should stay away from phalaris grasses and all that it's just you need to process so much to get an active amount that uh, it becomes counterproductive to proceed that way. Arundo donax—that one has always interested me um, because it has some suggestive aspects to its history. Arundodonax donax is a big plant called—it's called the Old World giant reed in common parlance. You may have seen it because in California, it's a problem in the Central Valley in the irrigation systems. Yes, they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year with big pieces of machinery, scooping the stuff out of the canals, and they just pile it to rot by the sides of the canals. So, you know, if you wanted to do chemical work on a it would be no problem to get a pickup truck full of the root. Uh, to this day, that plant is the preferred source of reeds for reed, for woodwind
0: instruments.
1: Uh, I thought it was interesting because I've always, you know, in my own involvement with ancient Greek mystery religion and stuff like that, it, you encounter always mention of the Orphic cult And the Orphic cults are as psychedelic as what went on at Eleusis or at Delphi or with the Dionysian cults, but there didn't seem to be a psychedelic plant, but the story of Orpheus is the story of a magic flute player who goes into the underworld and loses his his lover there, or escapes with her, depending on the version of the myth. Well, with the rundodonax, you suddenly have a source of reeds for flutes, and it's a plant whose underworld, whose roots, contain DMT. So in the style of ancient myth-making, it seems like a a myth that is trying to say something uh, about this plant in terms of is there any textual material out of the greek corpus that would support this contention not that i'm aware of you would have to you know you'd have to make a tortured argument but there is DMT in the roots is it extractable is it extractable by methods accessible to greeks of the time of the orphic cult not known uh You know, Hoffman and Wasson wanted to say that the cult at Eleusis, I mentioned this earlier, was based on ergotized grain. A lot of people criticized that theory because ergot, though hallucinogenic, is a pretty toxic material. I mean, it's very easy to send yourself into convulsions with it, if not actually kill yourself. And what we're asked to believe about Eleusis is that for more than 2,000 years, every September, anybody who offered themselves at the temple grounds would be initiated into this mystery. Not anyone. The rule was you, could, you, had, to be a free, you had to be a man. You had to be a free man. And you had to have not done it before interesting, this third rule. It means you could only do it once in your life. And imagine what a confused impression you would have of psychedelic uh, if you'd had one shot, one mega-dose shot, and then told, that's it for you. Uh, I think, I, I don't understand. i talked to Albert Hoffman about this, and my objection was, surely if it was ergot it would have obtained a reputation of danger there would have been stories of miscarriage or not miscarriages but of convulsions and death even ergot poisoning the outbreaks of it in the Middle Ages are more nightmarish than psychedelic you know entire villages go mad Uh, even as late as the summer of uh, 1787, there was this thing called the Grand Puerh, which was is carried in the history of France as a peasant revolt in the south of France, anticipating the French Revolution. Uh, but Mary Alice Matosian, in a book called Poisons of the Past, went into the parish records and did you know, got the evidence together, and it's pretty clear. It looks like it was an outbreak of uh, of ergotism. Uh, what Hoffman said to me was that he felt that there were potentially strains of ergot that elaborated water soluble psychedelic compounds, and that there would be a way to make an ergot beer and fractionate it so that you produced a liquid fraction of non-toxic but psychoactive alkaloids this it's strange this is a wonderful area for amateurs to do research and nobody's ever done it you know what we really want is to somebody to come forward with a beaker of stuff and say you know i made this for my i took it it was great here try it uh, if 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 it was not a psychedelic then we really don't understand what was going on at eleusis in the 19th century they thought that uh sometimes kind of something the descriptions are somewhat scattered but it seems as though at a certain high point in the ceremony something was displayed Everybody crowded into this thing called the Telesterion, a kind of temple. Then at a certain point, in a brilliant burst of light, something was shown. And the 19th century scholarship, probably owing something to its own Victorian hang-ups, had the idea that it was some kind of simulacrum of the female genitals which might raise the hackles of a bunch of Victorian classicists, but I doubt could get a bunch of toged pagans uh, so profoundly stirred. Uh, the other argument that it must have, the evidence that seems to suggest it must have been a drug, is there is this famous case, I guess you would call it, called the Scandal of Alcibiades which was Alcibiades was a friend of of Plato's and a uh, a nobleman of that musical, something you could carry around and something that you could give to your guests as an amusement after dinner parties. He was roundly run out of town for that stunt. And in the 2,000-year history of Eleusis, that was the only instance of anybody ever breaching it. You know, the greats of Greek and Roman literature, uh, Plutarch and Cicero, and all these people went and had their moment, and nobody ever gave away the real details of uh, of the mystery. Well, no, it occurs worldwide. Uh, Nepal has a conspecific flora of detourist that matches California. For example, in California, you have detura uh, metal. In Nepal, you have detura metalloides. There's also a subgenus that's very taxonomically well-defined called the arborescent deturus, the tree-like deturus. And that subset are called brugmansias. Brugmansias, suaviolens, uh, brugmansia, uh, candida, so forth, and so on. Uh, That arborescent subset seems to have evolved in the Andes and then been spread throughout the world as an ornamental plant. It's interesting. It's never controlled and you see it everywhere. And yet every single part of that plant is extraordinarily psychoactive and I mean you know you roll up a leaf and eat it and the next 24 hours of your life will be something to behold. Uh, I don't like it because it's uh, it's a delirium. It's very... It messes with core data processing and judgment algorithms that I kind of like to hang on to. Uh, This is an interesting thing about, you know, contrasting psychedelics. Probably the most extreme contrast would be between DMT and something like Datura or Ketamine. Uh, DMT... This incredible transformation of reality takes place almost instantly when you smoke it. But if you pay close attention to what has happened, you discover that you have not been changed. You are not ecstatic. You are not unreasonably terrified. You are not stimulated. You are not depressed. It's what's happened is the world you expect to find yourself in has been dramatically replaced. But your reaction to that is normal, which is to say, my God, what the fuck is going on? What does this mean? What is, how long will it last? Am I all right? When you take detura, the judging and discriminating function seems to erode quite quickly. And so you completely lose hold of reality. You don't know where you are, you don't know who you are, you don't know what has just happened, you have no notion. And for some reason, I don't know why it is, people invariably remove all their clothes, and then usually the rest of their trip revolves around the social and political consequences of having done that. Uh, in the mall, or on Main Street, or uh, something like that. It's used a lot for magic. And it's sort of, you know, one of the earliest date rape drugs. I mean, this is a drug you give to somebody if you want to thoroughly befuddle and confound them. If you give them more than that dose, they will actually become comatose and lose consciousness completely and... You know, I don't know. You could probably perform minor surgery on them, and they would never uh, object. It also has the side effect of, for days afterwards, dilating your eyes, and uh, and the detour hallucinations are a strange mixture of the ordinary and a failure of discriminating intelligence on the part of the person taking the drug. In other words, a DMT hallucination is you see something looks like it was made in another galaxy, bears no thumbprint of human reason on it, totally alien. A detour hallucination is a knock on the door and suddenly uh, 10 people you don't really know, but for some reason allow into your apartment uh, come into your apartment and perch on the furniture and talk to you for hours and eat up all your food and mess the bed and throw the dog out the window and break stuff and you know it's it's strange. It more fits with the medieval notion of of bewitchment than the modern notion of probing neurological frontiers. And there's a lot of these tropane-containing plants. Uh, the detours are the most spectacular, but uh, Brugnfelzias, Brugmansia, um, and then there's some obscure ones in South America, Latua Puba Flora, and like that. Right. And the Catalina Indians and the Luis Seño Indians, it seems to be a religion that was concentrated in Southern California. A lot of the rock painting out behind Santa Barbara and in places like that seems to be traced to these initiations. You may be right, I'm not sure, but they do call it the Talach. Complex to watch being the Sena word for detura. Well, this is all pretty specific uh, plant based hallucinogen uh, based information. Uh, is that what everybody bargained for? It's probably salvia. There used to be one by these greenhouses down here, and I looked. Not carefully, but from a distance of about 20 feet, I looked today, and I thought I could spot it, but it looked pretty gnarly. I don't think... It got it,
0: torn out a couple of years ago.
1: It's a pretty tenacious plant. Like, it's growing... It's going wild on my place in Hawaii, although Hawaii is incredibly close to its ideal growing conditions. In other words, heavy rainfall, well-drained volcanic soil, tropical... Daytime or nighttime temperatures and like that.
0: There was, there
1: was, there was an arm growing here. Yeah. And it may still be growing. No,
0: I have
1: two. Well, how how spontaneously and how new? Yeah, them well, hundreds of years. To produce a new species mm-hmm. of plant? Well, hundreds of years is cutting it pretty thin, but I think, like, you know, the most recently evolved plant groups are the orchids and the grasses. And uh, I think grasses speciate very quickly, maybe even in hundreds of years, certainly in a couple of millennia. Um... Yeah, I mean, they can't spring de novo. It's always about modification of pre-existing species. I mean, I, that's my assumption. Something like mushrooms, it's a little hard to talk about because the fossil record isn't good mushrooms don't fossilize at all well. I think the oldest authenticated mushroom fossil is 40 million years old. Well, that's a thousandth the life of the Earth. That's not that's not good news for our assumptions. On the other hand... Well, polynology is only effective uh, in looking for plants that were... Uh, major members of the ecosystem. In other words, pollenology can tell you 25 million years ago this went from being an oak forest to a maple forest, but it can't tell you the understory species and their distribution. Theoretically, it could. I mean, it's a matter of pushing the techniques of polynology harder, but at the moment, it just gives you very general statements, such as around sixteen thousand years ago, people began growing corn on the edge of this lake. They did that for two thousand years, and then they stopped growing corn. But in terms of giving you a complete inventory, uh, How about mushroom? well, mushroom spores are pretty durable, uh, but they're hellishly difficult to uh, identify they all basically look alike. I mean, that's somewhat of an exaggeration. But once you add in distortion and stuff like that from fossilization, sorting out mushroom spores is pretty, pretty difficult. There is a belief among some paleontologists that uh, very early in the history of life on Earth, there was a huge dieback based on the on overproduction of oxygen and that uh, fungi must have been necessary to redress the balance of all the dead material created by that fungi are ideally or mushrooms not fungi generally but mushrooms are pretty ideally suited as cosmic organisms to survive the conditions of outer space Uh, but the evolutionary history of them is probably one of the least understood of any of the major life groups on the earth because they're so soft-bodied and not very sexy either. Everybody wants to go out and dig up dinosaurs the length of three city buses. Who wants to make their name in micropaleontology? (laughs) Micro-micro-paleontology. <laughs> Anybody else on all of this, or anything else for that matter? One thing I might say about salvia, just in passing, uh, it, the most unique thing about it, besides its chemistry, is that it's legal. It's absolutely legal. You could contract with a chemical manufacturer to make a ton of this stuff. Uh, you could transport it across borders. You could place ads in newspapers to sell it. You could do therapy with it, advocate it, and formulate chewing gum based on it. This was actually suggested on the Internet. Uh, it, uh, at, it's interesting that the government has chosen not to go ballistic about this. And it may indicate a certain exhaustion with the whole notion of drug control. Because if you demonize salvia, it's perfectly set up to spread everywhere and become a social obsession. Anyone can grow salvia. You know, if you can grow carrots, if you can grow lettuce, you can grow... Salvia, and uh, it also looks very nondescript. Uh, And I've maintained, although some people say I'm naive and legalistic in my thinking, but I've maintained that because it's a diterpene, uh, not an alkaloid, the Wording of the drug laws is that any compound can be made illegal at the pleasure of the Attorney General if it is a uh, isomer, stereo isomer, stereoisomer, or cogener of an already known psychoactive substance. The problem is salvia divinorum is alpha-salvinorin does not fit that description. It is not an isomer, stereoisomer, isomer cogener, or structurally similar. So if you really want to make it illegal, uh, you would have to induce scientific evidence that there is some problem with it. First they would have to prove that it actually gets you high. First they would have to prove that it gets you high. Then they would have to prove that there was something wrong with that. Either that it was physiologically dangerous, addicting, or caused violent behavior, or some, something like that. And I think that it would open up just a huge can of worms. You see, when all these substances were made illegal in the, toward the close of the 60s, the cause of the panic was LSD. And uh, why? Because out of millions of people who took it, a couple jumped out of their dorm windows and otherwise brought great negative publicity upon it. And so the state of California, where all this was happening, decided to make LSD illegal. Well, then they, the Republicans controlled the legislature. They decided then to make all hallucinogens illegal in the same bill. And they went into the scientific literature and they just made lists. You know, mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, ibogaine, uh, bufotinine, later found to be inactive in human beings, is to this day carried as a Schedule One drug in the law because that week somebody thought it might cause hallucinations. So they bundled all this stuff together and in the panic of the times they passed this law. No scientific evidence was ever presented in any court that these things had detrimental properties. Uh, no science of any sort was ever filed with the court. Well that might and then six months later when the federal government became alarmed over the spread of the California drug-taking phenomenon. They decided that they would needed a federal statute to deal with all these hallucinogenic drugs. They simply copied the California statute, and it became federal law. So the whole thing was slid in in a very sly manner, and bad law was the result, because you have to make radical distinctions between things as different as DMT, psilocybin, bufotenine, so forth and so on. Probably a leaf. You know smoking it and chewing it is very inefficient if probably if you could chemically extract it, you would discover that that you know this makes sense as a drug. in other words, the numbers work. From what you could grow in a window box, if you could efficiently extract it, you could probably stone the entire population of the apartment house that window box is attached to. So it, it makes sense. It's very interesting that it's so active, you know, that one, 500 micrograms, half a milligram, pulls most people to pieces. I um,
0: the reason never...
1: Yeah, part of the issue that revolves around it is nobody who's gotten off disagrees that it's a strong consciousness-altering thing. The question is, is it pleasant? You know it's somewhat radical. Of course, people held this out against DMT, but I've always felt DMT, if you would let yourself go with it, was ecstatic, you know, that a hit that vast, couldn't not be. But uh, the people who smoke the alpha salvinorin, the pure compound, they seem something about the quality of the hallucination seems to involve pretty radical distortions of body image. People are always half in or half out of something. They're always trying to crawl out or crawl in to something. And they can't make very... They can't give a very good account of what's going on afterwards. So it's, uh, you know, radically deconstructs reality. Like DMT, it puts you back to baseline in under 15 minutes, usually. And, uh, you know, In terms of emergency room admissions to this point, probably zero for the entire continental United States. Uh, But that's because it's very fast-acting. Well, it's just my observation. First of all, DMT, which is completely horse of a different color, is active at about 50 to 70 milligrams 5MEO DMT is active at about 5 to 15 milligrams. So it so is you know speaking, it's more active. It uh, in my experience, I didn't hallucinate enough, considering that I was having the full, experience of a tryptamine in other words this strange numbing feeling and you have to get your courage up to do these things so I'd gone through the whole thing of the courage and all that and now you've smoked it and now you have this weird feeling through your body I kept reaching out for the DMT state and it never opened out into that it seemed to me like a huge and difficult to describe emotion You know, not rage, not love, not despair, not hope, but big like that. But no, very little visual activity at all. Now, recently people have been telling me I just didn't do enough. And that if you will but persist or double the dose, you know, Tim Leary used to say, when in doubt, double the dose. But I wasn't in any doubt that I was having a psychedelic experience. It just wasn't the one I wanted to have. Uh, On the other hand, the LD50 of these compounds is very high, so you're not in physical danger. Like doubling the dose, you're not in physical danger. But it's not physical danger that you come to fear with these things, you know. It's your mind that appears to be uh, hung out and dry. Sometimes people complain of, on tryptamines that their heart raced. I think tryptamines have a slight tendency to race your heart, but it's fear that really races your heart. And separating the fear from the drug is sometimes difficult, but if you can get a grip, the fear usually behaves like normal fear. In other words, if you can get a grip, the fear recedes. That's normal fear. Pharmacologically induced fear, there is no getting a grip. It runs you straight over the edge. Uh, the fear in DMT comes from just that the transition from this reality to that reality is so dramatic. I mean, you've taken drugs all your life. You've practiced yoga you've done this you've done that it's always about you know, suddenly here's this thing which just ding, turns the world inside down upside down and the sane reaction to that is a certain amount of caution and amazement and wondering if things are working alright uh, because it's the most dramatic transformation of your perception that you will probably ever experience the side of the yawning grave, or it's you know one of them, one of the few. Now that Alpha Salvanorian is on stage, it begin you know you begin to wonder how many of these short acting, apparently very you know not consequential to the functioning of your physiology, how many of these things are there? There could be myriads. Uh, One implies nothing. Two implies myriads. And more and more, you know, the future inevitably is going to be about the elaboration of all kinds of drugs. I mean, if materialist pharmacology is actually able to deliver on its understanding of how the world works, and it ought to be possible to design a drug that causes you to whistle the first eight bars of Dixie, and that's it. Uh, You know, there is this school of neurophysiology that holds that every thought has a unique molecular foundation, which is a mind-boggling concept. Uh, It extends syntax into matter in a way that we could probably ranch around to get some fairly psychedelic effects out of that conclusion. I don't know if I believe that. I find it hard to believe. On the other hand, I find it hard to formulate a counter-theory. If thought is not uniquely chemically defined, well, then what does uniquely define it? In other words, the thought, I will go home, is different from the thought, I will go home to mother. But was there more chemistry involved in the second statement than the first? And in what way did these chemistries differ? And what kind of chemistry is this, anyway? uh, Is all physiological functioning, including the formation of ideas and their expression through speech, Accompanied by chemical changes specific to each activity, how does it? It violates the principle of parsimony pretty dramatically. In other words, the idea that things should be as simple as possible. Would nature assign a unique chemical sequence to every possible linguistic utterance? I mean, maybe if. Well, this, well, let's look at the proposition: No two human thoughts are exactly alike. If you believe Chomsky and theories of deep structure, what's been said there is any thinkable thought is going to is going to follow rules that can be defined. A statement that doesn't follow these rules will not be perceived by language as language by any other person? Yeah, I mean, it's it's somewhat the, similar to the question you have when you don't inject drugs into the picture and just ask the question, uh, Does do syntactical rules allow for all possible thoughts to be expressed? Or are there literally unthinkable thoughts because they stand somehow outside of syntax? Well, I don't know if it's intuitively true, but I think it's true. In other words, like Gödel showed, that leave alone something as complicated as spoken language, simple arithmetic breaks down. You know, Gödel's so-called incommensurability theorem says that no formal system will generate all possible true formal statements possible within the system. And he showed that this was true for ordinary arithmetic. This is a pretty staggering thing to have secured. It shows there is no such thing as anchored thought. Mathematics itself begins to feel like a cultural activity, not the revelation of the face of deity, but just something as culture-bound as tattooing yourself or beating on a hollow drum. It's a tough one to swallow, for me, and for any Platonist, or anybody who has an atom of Platonic idealism in them, the idea that, uh, that these systems of rules don't produce all the potential truth possible in the system is maddening. And yet, Gödel had this nailed to the barn door by 1948. It's one of the most unassimilated understandings of the 20th century, I mean, everybody's heard of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and this, that, and the other. But realizing what Gödel showed about the limitations of formal thought has barely reached the physics department, let alone biology, psychology, and politics. They're not ready to give ground on this yet at all. So that leads us somewhat far afield into the, into the deeper water that, that surrounds these issues. The whole issue of, you know, what is language for? What is it adequate to? What does it mean when we have experiences that lie outside of language? Do they really lie outside of language, or do they lie outside of conventional metaphor? And can we, by pushing conventional metaphor, somehow take in more? Or are there, in fact, states of mind and perceptual states that simply fall through the the mesh of linguistic intent art the cutting edge of art is in here somewhere I remember I haven't, haven't been able to find it for years but somewhere in oh, partway through cities of the plain in a la recherche de thème there's this passage where these people are riding in this coach and this guy looks out into the passing forest landscape and has a thought which is reproduced on the page, which is a thought so complicated that until I read that page, I thought that I was the only person who had ever thought this thought. And I had never attempted to communicate it to anybody because it seemed so complicated and elusive. And, you know... Here it is, uh, in translation, no less. So uh, there is something about uh, extending the realm of what can be said. You know, Wittgenstein talked about the unspeakable and said, you know, beyond beyond the reach of philosophy. He always made these spatial metaphors. He said, beyond the reach of philosophy, beyond the present at hand, again, this lies the realm of the unspeakable. But this is a vector toward which the history of philosophy is necessarily pointing. Psychedelics are good for it, it's sometimes hard to imagine the unimaginable without a little kick in the tail from uh, uh, a plant ally or a chemical ally La- ordinary language seems to be almost a state of um, physiological equilibrium you know, like people the most interesting speech comes out of people when they're highly agitated either by love or revulsion or fear then they say very interesting things but most of the time what they say is runs along run mundane munals mundane runnels. <laughs> one of the ideas that I mean this is just following this thought about language but uh, and maybe then we should end after this but one of the ideas that has really struck me recently and I'll tell it to you it may seem trivial to you it's it may be because it is trivial and I just never quite understood it before but I recently read um George Dyson's book Darwin Among the Machines which is a wonderful book if you haven't read it it uh, It's basically a history of the idea of thinking machines. And it turns out there were people in the 19th century who saw the Internet with absolute clarity. They wrote about it. They were not talking about radio or TV or movies. They were talking about some kind of globally networked, distributed, interactive thing, uh, and... George Dyson, who's the son of Freeman Dyson, the famous big thinker in uh, nanotech and space engineering. Anyway, one of the things George Dyson says in there that struck me as very interesting was he said, when human beings make sense, in other words, when we actually say sensible things to each other, they can always be... um, deconstructed into the language of symbolic logic which is a branch of mathematics (laughs) and he said not only can meaningful human communication be deconstructed into symbolic logic but symbolic logic is the natural uh machine it's the natural environment for machine intelligence so in spite of the fact that we tend to feel this great gap between ourselves and our machines, there is a broad and shining bridge between us, which is we really speak the same language. Uh, they think as we do. We think as they do. There is no speed bump there. There is no uh, ontological difference of categories. and this probably holds great implications for the extension of human language into machine prosthesis. The fact that the Boolean operators and, or, and if, and but are in fact common parts of English speech, perfectly understood by a child of four, means there is an enormous uh, commonality between ourselves and these thinking machines that, that we've created. Well, there's a lot of talk about how alien they are and how uh, incommensurable the human and machine world are, but it turns out they're really not so different. Luddite yeah, talk. Blood-eye talk. You know, if, if, uh, if the hardcore biological materialists are right, and the, new, the evidence isn't in yet, we are machines of some sort. I mean, very complicated machines. And then, does this mean then that we are somehow, we lose our existential authenticity? If we admit we're machines, I don't think so. I think what it means is that matter is far more interesting, magical, and creative stuff than we've been used to thinking of it. It's not, li- it's not like little Lego blocks. Matter is, has telos. Matter has uh, energy, levels, intent, vectors toward completion. Right. Fractals. Well, for example, you get uh, in chemistry, even in simple chemistry, you get situations where you, well, let's take sulfur, for example. You heat sulfur. It's It's a yellow powder. You heat it. It becomes a black liquid. If you keep heating it, it suddenly becomes a black solid again. And if you keep heating it, it then goes into another liquid phase at a higher temperature. Uh, it, It has what are called two conformational geometries, depending on the local regime of temperature and pressure. Proteins are like this, you know, one of the great mysteries, one of the unsolved mysteries of biology that is really, pulling a lot of computational mathematics into the discussion is the question of protein folding. I mean, here you have a 10,000 Dalton protein. It's produced as a piece of linear spaghetti out of a ribosome, and within milliseconds after it leaves the the ribosome, it folds into a three-dimensional shape Always the same shape, even though there were hundreds of, thou- in fact, thousands of conformational geometries, and the and people, you know, in the first try at explaining this, people said, well, it always assumes the lower dimensional energy configuration. In other words, it seeks the low energy state. But when you actually take a given protein and model all the possible conformational geometries, it turns out the one it prefers is not necessarily the lowest energy state. Well, they're at sea. They have no idea. People like Sheldrake and woo-woo thinkers of that caliber have to step in in order to provide a metaphor for how this completely mechanistic, linear thing seems to perform an extremely complex calculation uh, and always perform it the same way and perform it instantly and without hesitation. And this is going on literally thousands of times a second inside every one of us as a precondition to existing at all. And it's not... uh, There isn't even the beginnings of a theory on this. It's one of the more challenging places in mathematical biology at the moment. Oh, yeah, there was this thing that lasted for seven hours that was on Dutch TV a a year or so ago, and uh, Sheldrake took place, took part, and some of the other big honchos of edgy science, and uh, uh, Dennett, who wrote uh, Consciousness Explained, was his name Dennis Dennett or Michael Dennett anyway he was there Uh, Rupert said at one point his book should have been called Consciousness Explained Away but as a biologist he was making this speech to the camera saying you know as mechanists it's our duty to remove the magic from matter there is no magic in matter well then sitting next to him was this quantum physicist who said listen I hate to rain on your parade, but matter is our specialty, and I can assure you all the work we do is revealing the greater depths of magic within matter. So part of the problem here is that the house of science does not communicate well in its various sections. What the folks in the quantum physical basement know, the folks up in the social sciences and biology can't even conceive of. They're operating essentially on a 19th century Hamiltonian model of the atom. They actually believe in simple location. They're victims of what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. They they take the physical world face value. They don't understand, you know, that its wave mechanical and corpuscular nature is not mere theorizing. It's it's actually part of it. It's really there. Any other questions? Otherwise, we'll knock off for tonight. I think it's time to knock off. This was lots of fun. My pleasure. It'll be different next time. (laughs)
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before you go, I want to be sure that you are aware of the fact that since this talk was given uh, back in 1998, there have been uh, some very significant changes in various state and federal laws in regards to salvia divinorum. So in today's program notes, uh, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've added links to a listing of U.S. state laws regarding salvia, and another link to the Wikipedia entry regarding the legal status of salvia worldwide. And uh, both of those would be good places for you to start before you begin any kind of a personal exploration of this amazing plant. Also, uh, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts that discuss salvia dibinorum, if you want to hear directly from Daniel Siebert... The person who Terrence just credited with being the person who first correctly identified the active ingredient in salvia, well then you can go back and re-listen to my podcast number 81, where Daniel and I talked about his work. Although that talk was recorded in February of 2007, I think that you'll still find all of the information in it uh, holds true yet today, other than the legal status of course, that's constantly changing. Well, uh, as much as I would like to keep visiting with you right now, I'm going to cut this a little short today and get back to reading my friend Matt Palomary's new novel, which just came out and it's titled, No Thing. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.